Hi, welcome back to the pack out. Thanks for sticking with me. We all have different cultural backgrounds. Sometimes that can be a challenge and sometimes a gift. Either way, it certainly makes for a good story. So I'll take my last dollar and I'll buy you daisies. I know they're your favorite to brighten the day. And we'll both hold each other. Today's story is all about weddings. What could be more fun? When my husband went to grad school, our neighbors were two college girls from India who had just arrived for the first time in the U.S. One time they were hanging out at my house and they noticed our wedding picture. They were fascinated with it. I thought it was because I looked so young. Nope. It was the white dress. One of them said, I've only ever seen those in movies. I had to laugh. For one thing, the gorgeous Hindu weddings that these girls knew well, those I had only seen in movies. In contrast, the white wedding dress sort of felt, I guess, vanilla, boring. But they weren't bored. They had as many questions about my backyard wedding reception as I did about their traditions. Nobody had ever stared at my wedding pictures like that before, and nobody had thought our menu of finger foods and the lineup of bridesmaids was anything noteworthy. To me, it felt typical. But the truth about typical is that there is no such thing. All that to tell you that this is a story about two very different weddings. So let's get into it. The stars of this story are Jeff and Teresa. They are friends that my husband and I made here in Quito. Coincidentally, the two of them tied the knot just one month after we did in 2005, but we'll get to that story in a minute. Anyway, recently Jeff and Teresa were invited to, you guessed it, a wedding. The bride, Anna, was an old friend from Jeff's time in the Peace Corps, and they hadn't kept in great touch. You know, we were I think in the time of Peace Corps, probably one of my closer friends, um, we'd kind of grown apart. She's lived in New York since she returned from Peace Corps, and I was living in the Midwest. It was very surprising that suddenly last year she said, oh, I'm getting married. And uh, we didn't think much of it, and we were kind of busy with everything we are doing in Quito, and we weren't going to go to the wedding, but um, she said, no, you really, really need to come to this wedding. And we're like, uh, okay. And they really did need to go because 16 years ago, when Jeff and Teresa were married, Anna had been there. She had supported them, and now it was their time to support her. This is Teresa. I'm very happy for her because she waited for this to happen for a long time. So at the last minute, they got tickets and headed on a red-eye flight. There they found themselves guests at a wedding unlike any other they had ever attended. I was overwhelmed. We did not know what we were getting into. Um, I was going to wear a suit, and my friend said, don't do that. That's a big mistake. You need to bring a tux. I think that's when we started to realize where we were going what we were doing. She was getting married at the Plaza Hotel, which was unknown to me, but certainly everybody else I've talked to since then <laughs> knows exactly what it is. It's probably one of the most famous hotels in New York City. It was beautiful. I have never seen a wedding like that before. It was just amazing. There were flowers everywhere. 
fancy, fancy from the beginning to the end. There they were at this chic wedding, and it was impossible not to make comparisons to their own. That was the first joke I made when I was there. I said, oh, Anna, this, this looks almost like our wedding. <laughs> That's why we were making, we were laughing. We're like, Anna, it's just like the old times, right? Remember when our wedding? <laughs> she was just laughing. We will get to their wedding, but before they could marry, Jeff and Teresa had to meet, which was pretty unlikely considering their circumstances. I was born in Zambia. Zambia is southern Africa, like south central. It's a landlocked country. I am the 11th child. We are all together 14. Uh, my village is uh, Chipushi village. It is small and uh, mostly, it's kind of like when you find a village like that, mostly like everybody's related. There's no electricity, no running water, nothing. We carry water on the head from the little stream. Uh, water like in big uh, containers, like 20 liters on my head. So you would do that? I used to carry it and Just balance Just as a little it. girl? Yes. Do you think you could still do it? I know maybe I can't walk like too far, but I can still do it. You know, like let's say in the States, kids, they play with dolls, Barbie dolls and stuff. But for us growing up, you can even make um, like dolls from... There was this certain grass that grew like a little bit big. And then when you pull it up, it had a lot of roots. And those roots, you wash it nicely and you make it like hair. And then you flip it, the bush itself, the grass, you can plait it and make like the arms and, and legs. Or we used clay to make our own dolls. She started school in the village, but in order to move from 7th to 8th grade, the kids needed to pass an exam. It cost around $60. It's like right now when you look at things, it doesn't look that expensive, but life in Zambia is just tough. And my parents, they farm for living. They don't have like machines to farm, just a small area to feed the family. So they couldn't afford to pay for my examinations. It looked like she would never go to school, but then a cousin came into town and acted as a sponsor. And we were like, yay! <laughs> so whatever you can go and have education, it's go with the wind. She left the village, passed the exams no problem, and was on her way to eventually finish high school. Meanwhile, Jeff was living his life. Raised in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, Appleton, Wisconsin, till 14. And then I lived in Piedmont, Missouri from, what, 15 till college. You know, Roman Catholic family. Uh, I had four siblings. I guess maybe something that makes it a little bit unusual was this transfer from Wisconsin to Missouri so that my dad can open up his first McDonald's restaurant. And so we went from being relatively obscure to sort of being the big fish in Piedmont, Missouri, where my dad owned the McDonald's in town. Uh, well, you know, a town of 3,000 people. Uh, we did have two vehicles, but uh, it wasn't extravagant. We didn't take holidays, and everything was just going into the business, right? He was as all-American as they come growing up in the Midwest and working at his dad's McDonald's. 
After high school, he went to college and studied mechanical engineering. And uh, was it well suited for it? Well, it was a great degree. It just wasn't the right fit. Had an aptitude for science and math. I was like, oh, do this. And I started it, and I knew halfway through that it wasn't for me. So when I was about to graduate, I had no experience and had no path. So he joined the Peace Corps where he could volunteer and explore the world a little bit. So I remember sitting at the table and my parents, and this is such a cliche story, but getting receiving the letters, sitting at a table by myself, opening it up, had asked for someplace in Africa and it said Zambia. And I was like, I don't know where that is. <laughs> and having to get a map and, uh, and, and re looking it up and it's all right in the middle. Of, and it seemed great. Um, you know, in Peace Corps, you have a, the option to refuse twice. You have to take the third, third choice. And I went ahead and took the first one. I was excited about it. That's how he found himself in a tiny village in Zambia working on the Community Action for Health program. He was the only white guy in town. The closest American, Chad, was around 40 miles away. Jeff's job was to create small committees in each village and help them to problem solve. He worked on prenatal care, TB, HIV AIDS prevention, and making sure that everyone had access to clean water. And as you'll see, water played a pretty important part in this story. Teresa was away from her parents' village, living with her sister. I finished my high school. So in Zambia, it's not easy to just kind of like, it's not a choice where you're kind of like, I'm finishing, I'm going to, to college right away. Somehow, <laughs> even if you know what you want to do, sometimes you can't get in, you know? And sometimes it's not about money. Sometimes, maybe sometimes who you know. So I was waiting to get to go to college. What happened next while I was waiting? I, um, I met Jeff. <laughs> I went to the village for holiday. Uh, well, when you live in a mud brick hut with you know grass thatch roof, you don't have running water, you don't have electricity, and so every day I would have to go get my own water for bathing and for cooking uh, and for drinking. So, uh, but you didn't carry it on your head. I did not carry it. No, no, I don't <laughs> have the skills. I went to fetch water. And he came fetching water too. <laughs> so there was other people there and hey, hi, hi, everybody, hi Jeff, because he's the only they call them Muzungu, white people, like white person Muzungu. It's not an insult. And I happened to be getting my water and there was kind of a congregation of people and I saw Teresa and we kind of met eyes and grabbed my water and walked away. <laughs> so so she had your attention. She had my attention. And so then later on, many days, weeks passed. My hut also happened to be right in front of two pitches, a netball pitch for that netball is a game that the women play. And so she would go and play netball. And I had my window where I would write and I would look out. And of course, she stood up. And uh, yeah, we started hanging out. The first thing they needed to figure out was how to talk to each other. Communication is hard in a new relationship anyway, but they literally didn't speak each other's languages. Even though British English is the official language of Zambia, Teresa had really only spoken what they speak in the village, Bemba. If we're being completely honest, her English was a little bit limited. I was trying to practice my Bemba and 
Well, and at first you didn't speak a lot of English, right? No, actually I practiced with him, which was which was tough communication-wise. Even if I want something, I like something, I'm not going to say it out loud. I'm a little bit shy, like, inside. Luckily, as opposed to just trying to start a relationship, her cousin Agnes uh, stayed there as well, and she had her steady boyfriend. So we sort of formed a group where we would listen to football matches on the radio. He was my friend. Because so, we're not allowed to date unless you know that it's somebody who's going to be serious. You're going to end somewhere else. I know things are changing now. P people, they're picking up a lot of Western culture. But for me, when I grew up that time, it was just, a, it's a no, no, you don't. In Bemba, they say, Chiquita Palamananamudiro, like, you can't put paper and fire together. We hang out as friends for a long time. Just, we got to know each other and be like, okay, like there was trust there. And so then one thing led to another. And then it just turned. He asked me out. <laughs> uh, I didn't know how to say yes, because I never experienced relationship. Like, like I never had a boyfriend before. Never. Because <laughs> if you, like for me, I was thinking if I say yes right away, maybe he's going to think of me like, maybe I've done this before. How long did you date? So we dated before we got married. All together was like maybe a year and a half-ish. And I liked him because he was just funny. He was caring. He was just different. Um, and I'm not talking about different color. No, different from other guys. She's got a really big heart. She's a really kind person. And uh, because of that, it shows in everything she does. She's just a truthfulness to her there's an honesty that you just kind of know what you're getting with Teresa uh, and that transparency and that good nature was easy to be attracted to he's just the old package <laughs> the paper had hit the fire and it caught Teresa had never even seen a McDonald's and knew next to nothing about the U.S. People I was living with, there was no like dish TV where you can watch like international stuff. It was just like local things. I knew nothing. Even if he said, oh, America, I'm like, okay, so what? And I fell in love blindly, just love him, just as a person. You know, I didn't know much about his background. I like that I, I was not exposed because it just, it just helped for both of us to be natural, to love each other for us you know he loved me for me a simple girl from the village and for me i just fell for the volunteer whom i met who didn't have much he was just a simple guy you know i think that was a blessing to me it was just like him in front of me i remember the day he proposed it was a beautiful night with stars you know in the village there's no like no spoiling lights you know it was just gorgeous we went and we just sat and we're just looking at the stars. And that's how he asked me. If he'd been in the U.S., things would have been a done deal. But in Zambia, Jeff still had some work cut out for him. I was not allowed to directly talk to her parents to ask to marry Teresa. I had to have what was called a go-between. And so Chad, my Peace Corps neighbor from Wisconsin... He acted as the go-between with another friend of ours who was Bemba, Chabala. He had to present these bowls 
uh, with some money in it to kind of add like an entrance fee. And Teresa sits in the room, but I can't be there. So they go through this whole sort of ceremony where they're like, oh, we don't know this person can explain. They talk about who he is, then me, and then they say, oh, I, we think we'd be okay with it. And then there's a negotiation for bride price. And the idea behind uh, <clears throat> bride price is that a mother and father are giving away their, their child, and it's like a gift to the family. And then that gift is sort of spread out amongst aunts and uncles, people that raised her. And this part did not go well. Because at 24, 25, I was very much against that. I was like, this is not my culture. When you pay for something like that, it becomes a good it's a transaction as opposed to a relational thing. And uh, I was very stubborn. And her parents were very surprised at my response because I initially refused. And eventually, you know, with counsel from, from my buddy Chad, he's like, listen, you're here. This is what they do. You need to do it. And I think at that point, I, I reached a moment of clarity and, and decided that in order to make this work, I had to do it. So, Do you remember how much it was? I mean, I, if you're thinking thousands, I don't think it was thousands of dollars. I think it was sub $1,000. I guess theoretically they have to pay it back if we ever get divorced. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know what happened, but... Um, yeah, but I think it also kind of lays into this idea that when there's an idea to you that's really foreign and it just seems like, man, this makes no sense at all, you're probably missing the boat. That you really need to stop and, and rewind because if you have full context of their culture, then it's like, yeah, this totally makes sense. That's what we do, and it's a respect thing <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and so anytime you start falling into that trap of feeling like things are really one-sided you got to be careful because quite often people have a perspective that has to be understood the bride price paid and permission given it was time for the big day with the village we did and I had notes invitations and then we had to deliver them from house to house by ourselves. Jeff invited all of his friends from the Peace Corps. I would say everybody because there were more than 90 volunteers from all parts of the country who were like listen there are no like hotels here. That's their thing they know they know when they travel so everybody brought a tent. What we arranged was to match up each person with a bamayo, which is a, a woman in charge of their household, who would provide water and food, and they would pay them. And so it was kind of like this neat little way to bring some money into the village, and people would stay in their tents. And the wedding itself? Yes, it was a big deal. Yeah, so I think we had three or 400 people. At the risk of sounding cocky or whatever, it, it was kind of like the event of the season. It was a big deal for people, and people were really excited about it, and so it was fun to be a part of it. We, we were on a shoestring budget, but even that was much more than I probably should have spent. <laughs> it wasn't the Plaza Hotel, but the Muzungu did his best to make things fancy. So logistics were very hard. So if we wanted to bring beer, we literally had to, someone had to drive it on a, a pallet truck. You know, you couldn't buy like a six-pack or a keg. Um, we had to go and order something like 200 chickens, and they had to be slaughtered. They prepared them all. It, there wasn't going to Walmart and having prepared food. The nun offered the convent to use it as a venue for me as a bride to get dressed there. 
and then the volunteer ladies of course they came to Ghana help me out which I really 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 appreciated. Teresa did have a white dress to wear which is traditional at church weddings in the area but that was the extent of her plans to get ready. I didn't even have makeup <laughs> and then they dolled me up with the fair skin makeup right? And of course African time sets in and Teresa's not there yet. I think it was supposed to start at one o'clock. I went back and and so this priest was from Poland and he'd been there for 15, 20 years, spoke Bemba impeccably. He gave me a shot of brandy <laughs> before the wedding to calm the nerves. And then I was late. The nun, old sister, she was funny. She was from Poland and she's like, it's your day, take your time. <laughs> They're going to wait for you no matter what. <laughs> But even after that, even after like being inside the church, being in the rectory, and then uh, we finally got to the altar, they had me stand up there. I, I guarantee it was 20 to 25 minutes waiting for Teresa to come to the church, and that was the longest 20, 25 minutes of my life. Chef was waiting like 30 minutes on the outer. <laughs> He's sweating. <laughs> did she, <laughs> did she change her mind or what? And it was a hot day. But she finally came in. Um, of course, she looked beautiful. Again, we were applying our American perspective on the idea of a wedding. Um, there certainly was a Zambian perspective. And so there were a number of cross-cultural misunderstandings that night, from music to, uh, to allocation of food and drink. <laughs> so we had a set amount of beers. And my Peace Corps friends could drink like fish, right? And uh, I think Zambians probably caught on to that really quickly. There was a little bit of push back and forth between the two groups about where the beers would be and people keeping some under their chairs so they could have some for later and you know tra keeping track of bottles because they had to get returned later on and all that stuff. But the bigger issue had to do with the bride. When we got to the reception, there were her older aunts had a very specific idea about how she should act at the reception. So certainly in an American sense, the idea is just to live it up like it's the best party of your life. Um, the opposite is true in Zambia, where they expected her to show humility and to be reserved and also even act a little bit sad, as in that this day was a turning point in her life where she was leaving her one family and starting a new family uh, and to show that respect. So as a bride, you're not supposed to be hyper. You know, you're supposed to be humble as a good wife, you know, not to be, hey, look at me, kind of thing. Um, it's the opposite of what I've seen in the Western world. <laughs> so here's the funny part is I had two hours in one place, right? <laughs> um, I have the traditional stuff here, you know, people were teaching me, my aunts were there, and then I had Pisco volunteers, you know, I had uh, Western nuns, you know, everybody... So I, this side, I would look at this side, they're telling me to smile. You know, they're doing motion, smile. <laughs> and then you're like, oh yeah, I should be smiling, right? And then I'm like, when I look at this side, they saw me smile, like, what are you doing? My aunts, they're like, throw yourself. <laughs> and so there was a lot of pressure on her probably from me, probably from her friends, to say, hey, come on, let's go, let's have a good time. And then her scene in the corner of her eye, you know, aunts sort of 
literally and figuratively waving their finger at her like you know how you're supposed to be acting i wasn't fully aware of all that was going on and so there it is right you're making assumptions about other people's cultures and yeah and you just think oh this this doesn't make any sense don't do it This misunderstanding at the wedding was actually just the beginning of what she has gone through since then, toggling between different cultures and different lives. When you're at this side, you know how to, like, you flip. It's both worlds, and um, it's a blessing for me, like, same as, like, growing up with really nothing, nothing to kind of have a little extra in your pocket, kind of like I know both worlds. Which brings us back to the Plaza Hotel in New York, where these Peace Corps volunteers were reunited under much different circumstances. And then the ceremony was right there. And we waited for the bride. And she came, she looked beautiful. Certainly flowers and ornate decorations everywhere. There were candles lit and... There were plenty of beers. There was no no limit. I mean, so... Besides having a reception dinner, they had an after kind of get together, and it was a full sushi bar and oysters and clams and anything you could think of, and it was all open bar, and it was amazing. And nobody was in tents. (laughs) There you have it. Two weddings, two happy couples. The parties were fancy in their own way, but they were both perfect just the way they were. I didn't get to go to either one, but I can imagine Anna biking to the village and staying in a tent to be there for her friends. And then, 16 years later, Jeff and Teresa flying on a plane, dressed to the nines, fitting in perfectly to return the favor. If anyone was wondering about my friends from college, well, they both returned home from India and eventually sent me photos of their weddings. They were perfect brides in their colorful saris. As I've been thinking about this, I realized that I was kind of rough on white dresses. Of course they're special. I loved wearing mine, borrowed as it was. It's a big world with a lot of people. We all have different languages and cultures and ideas about how we should behave. None of them are typical because all of them are personal. The same could be said about falling in love. So if you're lucky enough to find that special someone, whether it be across oceans or just sitting next to you in class, don't worry what will be served at the wedding. It doesn't matter where you keep the beers or if the bride is smiling. Fancy or not, there really is no right way. And that applies to most everything. If you ever find yourself faced with a tradition that you don't understand, you might take Chad's advice. You're here. You need to do it. Trust me, you don't want to miss that boat. Special thanks for this episode go to my friends Jeff and Teresa Birschbach. Thanks so much for sharing your story. And I think we ought to have a shout out to Chad too. Editing by Casey and Curtis Cummings, theme song by Chris Wetton, and performed by Aggregate.